Hello, this is a podcast called A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, and it is, of course, brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. I'm Jeff Milo, and I'm joined again by Michelle Williamson because we're giving you another installment on our series on information literacy. Today we have Jo Angela Early, a learning librarian from the University of Michigan. She'll be joining us in just a moment. Michelle Williamson, as I said, is here. And before we get into our interview with Early, we want to just take a few minutes to unpack another aspect of information literacy, and that is confirmation bias and how those biases can trap us inside of bubbles. Mobilizing and manipulating information was a feature of history long before modern journalism established ethical standards for accuracy. An early record dates back to ancient Rome when Antony met Cleopatra and his political enemy, Octavian, launched a smear campaign against him with short, sharp slogans written upon coins in the style of, uh, I guess, archaic tweets. Octavian, in a sense, was the first politician to go viral with misleading statements. Statements on Twitter can spread the wildfire and wind up influencing social media users who are encountering this misinformation and often disinformation. As Robinson Meyer recently wrote in a report for The Atlantic magazine, Falsehoods almost always beat out the truth on Twitter, penetrating further, faster, and deeper into the social network than accurate information. The study focused specifically on Twitter, where data scientists at MIT found that false information outperformed true information. But they also mentioned that that's not just because of bots. It might have something to do with human nature. Now I said bots, what are bots? Those are technically internet robots, but they are also more specifically, a software application that runs automated tasks over the internet, which can include tweets and retweets using fabricated accounts to seem like human users. But false information also travels faster because it seems to be in human nature that we long for a confirmation of our individual perceptions of reality. This is confirmation bias. And it winds up creating what we call an information bubble. Confirmation bias occurs when a person interprets a situation, or in some instances, a headline, according to their own pre-existing beliefs. Another way to describe your information bubble would be something like a news echo chamber. You are hearing what fits your reality. A recent article from Scientific American on confirmation biases said that the fact that low credibility content spreads so quickly and easily suggests that both people and the algorithms behind social media platforms are vulnerable to manipulation. Social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter are the sources for a considerable amount of the average person's news intake. They follow the algorithms used to determine what people see online. You are very likely to see something that confirms your reality because it ties in with what you've already liked or shared. Bias bubbles are something that is, again, part of human nature. It's deeply ingrained in collective psychology, and that means there's no easy fix or no simple way to combat it. But awareness is key. Being aware of how information can be manipulated or co-opted for ulterior agendas is all part of what we've discussed before on this podcast. A healthy sense of skepticism. It goes back to that farcical line that librarians like to say maybe as a joke or as fodder for a meme. I read it on the internet, so it must be true. And for more on that, we're going to be speaking with Angie Early. Early is a learning librarian and children's literature librarian at the University of Michigan, teaching library-related courses, as well as managing children's literature at the Hatcher Graduate Library. She was recognized in 2017 by the American Library Association with the Library Instruction Roundtable Award for her work on the development, advancement, and support of information literacy and instruction. 
Before U of M, she formerly worked as a high school and middle school teacher. This is our chat. So Angie, we have covered uh, on this podcast, we've done a couple of these episodes on information literacy. So we've covered sort of the the differences between what misinformation is and disinformation, uh, and as well as we've dug into what uh, what news literacy is, but we haven't really unpacked information literacy. Can you help our listeners grasp the essence of, of information literacy and why they should be aware of it and, and have a, a functioning capacity for it? Well, I think this is a really important question is really one of the things that fake news is just one component of when we talk about information literacy, because I really feel like Information literacy is not just being about a con- being an understanding that you're a consumer of information, but it's also about being realizing your role as a producer of information. And as you are engaging with information and critically thinking about information and that whole sort of atmosphere and environment that is encompasses both being a consumer and producer of information. And so we that's when we start talking about, okay, well, do you understand how information is created in 2020? And do you understand how information was created in 1920? And what does that mean? You know, sort of, you know, how, what that relationship means and what does that mean for us in understanding what's going on in the world today? Okay, information is created by somebody. Who is that somebody? Are they, what is, what is their authority in doing that and what is the sort of sociology of that authority what are people's lived experiences and how they are applying what they think of as authority in this information you know ecosystem so thinking about that understanding you know sort of the role of technology in information what is the value of information who has who has access to something and who doesn't and why you know sort of thinking through all of these really sort of deep levels of information literacy where news literacy is sort of a component of that so that's what i think about i think about it as i like the word ecosystem it's like this whole environment and understanding the environment and your role in it as both a consumer and producer of information. I feel like I asked a big question. (laughs) (laughs) It is a big question. There's a lot written about this. There's a lot, you know, and librarians at various levels engage in information literacy, I think in almost any role in a library. And so what what you're doing, whether you're behind the scenes and creating systems that make information accessible, there's an information literacy component because you understand that ecosystem. Yeah. But yeah. So Angie, can you talk about your background, the career path that brought you to information and library sciences and what it was that drew you toward it? Sure, sure. I think like a lot of people, I didn't have sort of a straight line from one place to another. And yet I admire the folks that do have that one straight line. I've sort of taken kind of a circuitous route to to where I am today. You know, I was raised on a dairy farm in northern Michigan. I'm a first generation college student and, you know, didn't really know what I was getting into when I went off to college, but had done really well in high school and knew I didn't want to, 
I, I personally didn't want to be a, a farmer, a dairy farmer. I appreciate what those folks do. I uh, certainly hope I got my work ethic from that experience, you know, things like that. And so I went off to college not really knowing what I what I what the potential, what the possibilities were. And so I got a work study job in the library and worked behind the scenes in um, what in library land we call technical services is a general sort of umbrella term and had a few work study positions in that area. Being in the bindery, that was my first job, you know, gathering the books together to send off to the commercial binder. And um, I worked in the serials department. And then I kind of thought I wanted to be a teacher, but I, I didn't really... I don't think I was really ready to do that. I, I think I needed to be out in the world a little bit more. And so when I graduated, they hired me full time in technical services, which was lovely. And I worked in acquisitions and I worked in cataloging. So that whole period, I learned a lot about libraries, which was great. And I supervised a lot of people and, you know, sort of learned about that role in terms of I always took it like I'm going to be a coach or a teacher in that role. As I sort of matured, I thought, oh, well, maybe I can do this teacher thing. So I went back to school and I got my teaching certificate and I taught in alternative high school starting right out. So really like pushing me to sort of think about education in very broad ways. This was very much like alternative school and like sort of alternative thinking about how to teach and taught middle school and, you know, did sort of some different things and moved around a little bit, which affected sort of employment things like they do. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of saw the, in some ways, really saw the information sort of explosion coming because I taught social studies in English and, you know, there, there's always things like research projects. I kind of saw the development from taking your students to the library to look things up in the encyclopedia to like some of these curated sites that there used to be out there where and where you could like search on dog pile and, you know, different things like starting, starting right out. And, and then I started to start, start that coming. So I thought, well, let's go to library school and then hopefully I can merge my past library plus teacher together. And I mean, I guess I was just really lucky in that way that I was able to get to where I am here as a librarian in higher education, working with like in some cases, I work directly with the teacher education program and things like that, training new teachers. I, I have taught classes for the university, you know, beyond the fake news class and, you know, preparing future librarians. So, you know, things like that, that have really sort of been this like great sort of melt, you know, sort of put everything together in um, that, that great sort of soup that is out there of our past and made it kind of all come together into librarianship. Right. It's great when all of your experience and skills can layer on top of each other and just form the job that you're meant for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel really lucky and blessed and, and just, just really, really happy about how it all worked out. She could sense the information <laughs> explosion coming. That sounds, I love it. That sounds like a William Gibson novel. Um, <laughs> I don't know how, you know, yeah, I think it was just like, okay, I was at a good spot. You know, I had moved and things weren't working out. And I was like, well, this is something that has a future. I remember talking to one of my, the the principal I had at my last school, and he was going to be a reference for me 
And I remember describing what I was doing. And he's like, no, we do this in middle school. We already are doing this. And I was like, oh, but wait, like it's going to be bigger. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know, it was just really interesting, you know, to sort of see it kind of all come down to the pike, down the pike. Right. Angie, you kind of touched on it, but maybe you could go a little bit more into what your role is at U U of M as the learning librarian and children's literature librarian and, and what that's like. And I guess how it's going lately in a virtual situation. So yeah, at University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, it's just a huge campus. So we really are, and we serve a lot of students, faculty, researchers, clinicians, broad array of people and and people in service in different ways. And and it's also a public institution. So, you know, in a lot of ways, we are open to the public in, in that way. And what happens at these large universities is that there's so much to do that people's jobs get very, like in a smaller place, you're doing a little bit of everything, right? You know, you're, you might be a librarian that works on uh, anything that has to do with, you know, checking out books to people and circulation and access, but you're also teaching classes to incoming freshmen or incoming students, first year students around, you know, around using the library. And then you might be doing also a little cataloging and describing the materials that are coming in to put them on, you know, the descriptive information online so that you can, other people can find them. But since we're so big, when you think about anything that you could major in at a, co- at a college, every department has a librarian that is sort of focused on the needs of that department. And then on top of that, we have people who specialize in how to do certain things. So we have librarians that focus on research data and how do you find research data and how can you use certain digital tools to, you know, to to create something interesting with that data. And for me, because of my background with high school and middle school experiences, I really, I with my learning librarian role, really focus on those beginning, what I call beginning researchers. So yes, they're first year students, they're maybe taking a writing, their writing requirement. They've got an assignment that requires them to make an argument. Like they're writing, they need to write something in order to make a case for something. And they need evidence in order to make that case. So My job is to go into that class and help students not only find information to make their case, but maybe even think about their case to begin with, right? Like, you know, maybe you shouldn't make up your mind about what the case is. You should do the research to sort of see all the options about that case and then, you know, sort of decide, you know, sort of what you're thinking about the situation. And so it's about what we call evaluating information, critically thinking about information. And so I'm, I'm teaching students not just you know, how to look up articles in a scholarly database, but also to think deeply about those articles. And I do a lot of that, a lot of that, go into a lot of classes and do that and work with a team of people that focus on beginning researchers, which is wonderful. And then with my children's literature librarian hat, if you will, because I have this experience as an English teacher, and I used to also do story times, and I used to catalog children's books, 
way back when I worked in technical services at Western Michigan University. I have this experience with children's literature. And while U of M doesn't have a like a children's literature department or anything like that, you know, certainly folks in the School of Education, some interest in the English department, you know, there's people who are looking at research, the psychology of children's literature, the sort of impact of that. And so I, I work with those researchers and students to both look at secondary research about how, like, for example, how a kid who's reading a book where they identify with a character that has a lived experience like their own, when that identification, how might that inform or how might that affect them? So it can help them find, you know, researchers and students find secondary research. But a lot of times I'm just putting books in in people's hands. I manage a small collection of children's books that people can check out from the library. And so, you know, I'm I'm selecting books for that and thinking about what books should be in that and, and sort of managing the physical collection of those books as well. It's amazing all of the tasks that can fall under the umbrella of teacher librarian. (laughs) (laughs) I know it just is. So we're getting ready because fall semester is going to be begin and we do um, welcome week activities just because, you know, people could come from a place where they don't have a lot of access. Maybe they don't even have a high school library library, you know, so we have to like sort of you know, help students learn about what is a library and how can we help that help you. Well, Angie, we uh, also wanted to ask you about a class that Jeff and I are both big fans of yeah, <laughs> and sure. love that this exists. Can you tell us uh, why the course Fake News, Lies and Propaganda, How to Sort Fact from Fiction was and is so important? And could you share some of the key lessons and insights that a course like that would provide? Here, here's the thing, this idea of fake news and this, uh, how, you know, we're sort of thinking about sort of what's going on in the world and how we're going to learn about what's going on in the world. That's the essence of the class. How are you going to know what's going on in the world when you're not an, a climate change expert and yet you are, you need to know what's going on in the environment. Where are you going to, how are you going to trust what you're, you're reading? How are you going to think critically think about what you're reading? So, so we feel like this course, because we're in an environment that is so information rich in our worlds now, you know, we, it, it used to be that news was maybe a little more curated, in a physical newspaper or the six or six thirty news, and many people were getting the same message. Whereas now, when we think about the the news ecosystem, that sort of component of information, it has definitely become much more dispersed, segmented. And so, and in many cases, instead of sitting and waiting until 6 or 6.30 for the news to come to us, it's coming to us all the time. And so we're sort of having to think about sort of, well, how am I going to know what's going on in the world when the world is so complex and I have a barrage of information coming at me? So, and I think this was really, of course, uh, the term fake news has been around for a while, but it was certainly came forward Uh, as part of the 2016 election, which is, you know, a a place where many people were thinking about these issues and and we became much more intentional about thinking about fake news in that way. 
And so I just feel like this really falls in the wheelhouse of what librarians do, especially librarians who specialize in information literacy. You know, a student could come to me at an institution of higher education about any topic, and it could be about a topic and, they ha- and they're trying to make a case that I disagree with, but that's not what my job is. My job is to curate and preserve information so that people can study it. And so I, you know, when I have my children's literature uh, hat on, you know, I don't love every children's book that I buy, but I'm curating and putting together this so that we can, future researchers can have that. And so it seems like it's a great place for librarians to sort of be. And when you've looked at the research about like sort of the most trusted professions, I believe there was a study out of Maine that showed how many people like really trust librarians, you know? And so we're in this sort of unique educational spot the term fake news is very divisive and the news itself is being, you know, sort of pushed forward as, as a way to divide people, whereas libraries are this place where people come together. And so it's just a really great place for libraries to be and to sort of engage in conversation. And so I really feel like the class becomes this sort of conversation about the news. So you were talking about key lessons of the class. Well, it's not a a class where I'm teaching students one strategy of how to find out whether something is true or not. When you're thinking about evaluating something, this is like a higher order thinking skill. It is something that is a critical thinking exercise and you are mostly trying to develop people's sort of questioning mindsets, right? asking the why questions, and those are not always the same question, right? So you're trying to sort of develop that mindset, and so it takes practice. So this class is also considered like a lab course, so really we're doing a lot of, let's call it hands-on, applied kind of learning. So it's looking at examples together and saying to ourselves, well, what kind of questions do we have here? When we look at a photo in the news, what kind of questions should we ask ourselves about, and this gets back to the information literacy thing, about how that photo was produced? Why that photo, right? Is it is it portraying a particular figure in a very unflattering way? How do you respond to that, right? And sort of thinking about those things. So I think a key lesson is, to not allow other folks to think for you, to help you sort of develop your own critical thinking skills. And so we do that in this very applied way where we're looking at examples together, but we're also asking ourselves some like pretty critical questions like can technology fix fake news, right? There's a lot of approaches out there to that that are like sort of being applied in the Facebook or in other social media realms, you know, and what are some of the artificial intelligence things that could be put out there to sort of think through and sort of filter some of the things that are coming um, out for that. These are the some of the questions and sort of the kinds of things that we we think about. Why why does fake news work? Like people fall, and it doesn't matter what your political beliefs are, people from across the political spectrum fall for fake news. One of the key things that I think students learn from the class is when you land on a page of information, 
you need to be thinking beyond that page of information, both, you know, in your head and physically. A key lesson of the class, one of the key strategies of engaging with fake news is get off the page, right? Get beyond the page. That's right. Or reading laterally. Is that kind of what you're thinking? That's what I'm talking about. Reading laterally. The research at the Stanford History Education Group is really great. They have a a whole project around um, civics and sort of understanding in, in, in the current world. But reading laterally. If you are on a page that is sending you, you know, sort of information, don't rely on the information that is part of that website series of pages or ecosystem. Always open a new tab, start investigating, and don't just put words in. Like in Google, you can ask questions. Who is whatever the author of this group is, right? Is there any criticism of the name of this publishing organization? And learn more about what you see there, but reading laterally. Yep, absolutely, Michelle. Uh, you're training professional scrutinizers, it sounds. And <laughs> Yeah. And, and this goes back to our William Gibson information explosion idea, how exciting it is to me that librarians are in a lab setting. I think that sounds so cool. And also, Angie, you, you covered a lot of the questions we were going to ask, especially just what public librarians, the role that they can play in helping their communities be aware of fake news. You know, it made me think of one of my favorite memes that are out there on the internet, which is for librarians. And it's a picture of Harrison Ford in his famous star Wars costume. And it says it's dangerous to Google solo. Cause, <laughs> cause then that's where, you know, your inform your local information scientist could come in and, and help. But is there anything else that we didn't cover is just in terms of just simple tools that a listener to this podcast uh, might take when they're when they go off and surf the Internet? I feel like you're kind of giving them an honorary degree with so much that you've given us already. (laughs) I love talking about this stuff. I will tell you there is a key role that public libraries play in this, and that is access to information. You know, it's interesting to see the information that is freely available out there to you and the information that you have to pay for. And there's a reason why, again, the producers of information and the consumers of information are key here. I mean, it takes, we we talk about what do journalists do? What are, you know, what is the news, you know, what are these news organizations, you know, doing? And why does it cost them to do that when we all are very, can easily put a blog together and get information out there. But a public library, like can provide access to trusted, news information by, you know, navigating the library's um, online presence and and logging in and looking at subscriptions um, that you can get through your library rather than paying for an individual subscription and, and having to get to it yourself. I think that's a key role in public librarianship and as well as things like access to computers themselves. A lot of people have phones, but it can be much easier to do searching, reading laterally, you know, sort of in in a, in a bigger screen, you know, and pres- providing disability services as well so that access to people who are not part of the dominant culture can, you know, have a reader on the on the computer so that it can read text to them if they are visually impaired. So there's a lot of a lot of things that I think public librarians, the role of that is. I mean, we're not grading you. We, you know, in a lot of ways, 
it's not our business what your what your thoughts are on a public policy or something like that. We're there to provide that information. And I think that's that's really important. And I would say another key lesson is that when you're reading something online, like this may sound cynical. <laughs> we've, we've, but, we've used that word on this podcast. <laughs> If something is too good to be true, whatever your definition of too good to be true is, if something is too good to be true, if you are having a physiological response that is like this extreme emotional response, it probably is too good to be true. (laughs) You know, so you should think about sort of, you do have to have this sort of self-awareness when you're engaging with the news. It can be very easy to get sucked into the news, but taking that step back and saying, okay, why am I feeling this way? Why am I responding this way? Oh, this has to do with my lived experience. I have this kind of bias to stories about this topic. And so we spend some time sort of examining what that means and how it might be to walk a mile in someone else's shoes, you know, sort of thinking about, well, why might somebody respond in a certain way? And that becomes a very, in educational terms, we talk it like metacognitive moment, this thinking about thinking moment, which can be, you know, really challenging sometimes when we're really sucked into something, like taking that moment to step back. I think that is, that is a real key lesson that we sort of want. If you are reading something, you should watch for your own response. Are you clicking that share button right away without thinking about that? You know, how often do you do that? You know, things like that. I I wonder if anyone's done a study and the more extreme your physical reaction is to a headline, how does that correlate to how quickly you are to share it? (laughs) Right, right. But, you know, it's like a fire. Sometimes those fires are easy to start, but hard to put out. Right. And so once it's shared out there, it's hard to to sort of stop how that goes. So we talk about things like bot and, you know, sort of the 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 sort of tech realm and how that affects the sharing of news. But, you know, it's it's a it's a lot. You know, a lot of times people have to take like news breaks. Right. Because there's a lot to absorb. And and I do think this current, you know, lockdown affects things where people might be even more of in even more of a filter physically, as well as what they have on their phone. And how is that affecting people? And I think also in any situation where there is health and public policy concerns, you know, I'm not a public policy expert. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a doctor. And so I have to trust somebody to understand this. Otherwise, it just, you know, it, it's it's very difficult to move through the through this experience. And so I feel like this is sort of the moment where all of these things are coming together, the psychology of fake news, the tech of fake news, the divisiveness of fake news, the the splintering of the news publishing industry. This is all coming together in this moment. And so we have to make some decisions about sort of how we're going to respond and also in relationship to one another. You've given us so much. We have time for just one more question. And the short answer might be yes, but I wonder what the slightly longer answer might be. We have had, I feel like, a lot of confusion around the last five months of coronavirus. Do you think or anticipate that this global event is going to shape future syllabi or curriculum in any way for you? I think because there are so many what in higher education we call interdisciplinary components to this, thinking about 
both the science and the technology of what's happening with the coronavirus and our approach to it and layer the sociology and the psychology and social science of this, I think it does provide a test case of sort of understanding things. So again, in sort of an applied way, it's a great case study in a lot of ways that people will look at. It's an interesting way to think about how we respond to photos and images. And do we believe those videos about specific conspiracy theories because they're videos? Do we? How do we respond to things that are more visual res, rather than text-based? I do see a change. It's a, it's a it's an opportunity to talk about rhetoric and discourse and public rhetoric and discourse and our what influences our government systems and our and our political environment. I do think we have to sort of think through how we're going to live through this experience and then, you know, think about our thinking through this. I'm a big person for metacognitive sort of approaches to stuff, taking that step back and saying, okay, why? I do think there will be opportunities in more than just journalism programs and more than just political programs, but how are people making their case for both wearing a mask and not wearing a mask? So that's how, that's the conversation about discourse and how we um, engage with one another. Evaluating information when you see uh, something about a particular study that has to do with a medical approach or um, how, how I can't even ever say that hydrochlora, you know, that whole component. Right. What do you how are people responding to that? You know, I do. I think if we can get it together, <laughs> you know, it does provide an, a good educational opportunity. And I will say, you know, I did get emails from students that were like, thank God I'm taking this class right now. <laughs> you know, I did have to move my class very quickly online. And, you know, we looked at actual, you know, COVID-19 memes and, you know, stories and, and sort of talked them through together. But yeah. What a great real life opportunity to teach. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, sadly, every semester I have to come up, I come up with new uh, examples because they're out there yeah but i also like want to make it relatable yeah and and that's just part of this it's an ongoing conversation we can't just say here's how you can stop fake news or misinformation and the problem is solved it's ever evolving and yeah angie early we appreciate you so much for being on the podcast and just giving us such a glimpse of what the future librarians of tomorrow are going to be tackling thank you for having me it was great to be here thank you thank you thank you That was Angie Early, learning librarian and children's literature librarian at the University of Michigan, giving us a crash course on information literacy and a, and a peek into how much goes into her role for training the librarians of tomorrow when it comes to the issue of information literacy and being able to scrutinize what we're encountering on the internet. She talked about a lot, including perspectives from the Stanford Library and reading laterally, We'll have that in our show notes. But that is our show. The podcast episode, another one on information literacy. 
Something else we're going to provide in the show notes is something called Blue Feed Red Feed, which is uh, we'll link to it, and it is provided by the Wall Street Journal, which demonstrates how reality may differ for different Facebook users in terms of what the algorithm is putting into their feed. This podcast is called A Little Too Quiet, and I was joined by librarian Michelle Williamson. My name is Jeff Milo, and we produce this podcast in-house here at the Ferndale Area District Library. It's brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library, and if you want to support this podcast, just go to ferndalefriends.org. The music you're listening to is by John Duffy, a local musician. We'll be back with more soon. Thanks for listening. 